And this is the podcast against disease brought to you by humanity against disease. Today's topic is how good is it forest bathing edition, which is basically the same thing as hiking and camping, but it sounds much fancier when the Japanese do it. So let me tell you a little bit about how fancy the Japanese made it in the 1980s. Japanese researchers developed this concept. Uh, Cody, do you want to attempt to pronounce it? But disclaimer, neither of us is very good at pronouncing Japanese. Yeah. So anybody who wants to send us the proper pronunciation, you are more than welcome to. Uh, Japanese is a great language. I'm a huge anime nerd and have great respect for the Japanese language, but I'm not very good at it. So the, the Japanese term for forest bathing is something like shinrin-yoku. Exactly. We'll call it forest bathing because I don't want to keep butchering the name. In the 1980s, Japan decides to make forest bathing a part of its national health curriculum. And the aim is to just uh, create a preventative health model involving Japan's abundant forests and help people by telling them to go out in nature and engage with all of their five senses. So less of a hike where you're just trying to get from point A to point B as quickly as you can and more of kind of a wandering through nature, feeling and hearing and sensing and seeing everything and sort of being very meditative and mindful. Yeah, so in a sense, it's a form of meditation, which is something I hope we're going to cover in future episodes as well. But it does kind of bring together several different elements and we'll talk about how each of those might be contributing to some of the health benefits they see. Kavita, do we want to start out with talking about some of our own experiences with nature? Yes, absolutely. It's kind of cool because I feel like before we recorded this podcast or did the research for it, I didn't know this was a concept, but I feel like I had definitely been benefiting from it. One discrete example I have is At Duke, where I went for undergrad, we had this patch of forest separating the main quad on the uh, main campus from the science buildings. And so I remember on mornings, I would always be rushing to get to chemistry lecture, you know, feeling stressed about an exam that was coming up. And then I would take my route through the forest. And then no matter how fast I walked or What I did, I always felt calmer after emerging from the forest. And it was pretty cool because I remember when when I would come back from class, usually I'd have more time, I'd walk slower. If there were days that I would look at everything as I was going, smell things, kind of just watch leaves move in the wind, I remember just feeling immensely happy. Yeah, it is really interesting how the act of just being surrounded by trees and a little bit of nature can really make the act of going a certain distance feel that much different. Totally. I think it was Dimitri Martin who said hiking is just walking where it's okay to pee. (laughs) But I feel that there's much more to it than that. 
And one of the things that this set of papers had me thinking a lot about is that in our culture, the experience of forest bathing is something that you run into more often in childhood. I mean, I lived in a rural environment in mid-Michigan, and we were my brother and I and my friends were able to go into the woods behind my house all the time, and now there are still a lot of parks there. And that was, I think, a lot more congruent with what they're describing in these papers as forest bathing, where you're just running around without any particular aim, just experiencing the experience. And that's something that I hope future generations continue to have the opportunity to do. And I think it's a good argument for conservation and for mindfully organizing our growth as we start to urbanize more and get more quote unquote civilized, that we make sure that there are opportunities for people to experience that sort of thing. Totally. Absolutely. It also just makes me think that my parents are once again the people in my life who I think are living the healthiest lifestyle ever. Yeah. <laughs> Growing up, we had this yard. I mean, I mean, both of my parents come from farming families. Mm-hmm. And we had this backyard with every kind of fruit and vegetable growing possible. And every day after coming home from a busy day at work, my mom and dad would immediately go out into the yard, say hi to all the plants, water them, walk around the yard, and then they would come in and bring some fresh produce for us to cook for dinner. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like a nice ritual. Yeah, yeah. I think it really was. But, uh, so, hard segue, since we're all, <laughs> since we're all about the evidence, we wanted evidence. to see not just is it, fun and does it on the surface seem good for you but what can Mm -hmm. it actually do for your health and how can we take lessons from this to build nature into our daily lives and get a little bit of a kick out of it so that we can perhaps live longer and suffer less absolutely we are always about the evidence and so we have to give a big disclaimer before we start going through the evidence and that is the fact that there are limitations to the evidence that we're about to present on forest bathing. Number one, there's not that much out there. Number two, it's not very high quality. And why is it not high quality? So one is a lot of the researchers who do research on forest bathing probably have a bias towards it, um, towards favoring it as a positive thing. Uh, A lot of the people who do the studies, they're either from Japan or they're researchers where you look at their credentials and they're involved in integrative medicine or alternative medicine. So they definitely want this to be an effective thing. Other limitations are that there is a publication bias. And that is when... You really hear about things if they're strongly positive or strongly negative. And that's kind of present in all aspects of information sharing. Usually, you know, on a restaurant page, people leave reviews either if they feel really good or really bad about the food. And so in the same way in the scientific community, people who have studies that really showed some kind of positive effect or really showed some kind of negative bad effect. Those are the kind of studies that are going to be published. Usually, if you take a paper to a big scientific journal that says, hey, I did this experiment, and there's actually no difference um, between doing the thing and not doing the thing, nobody would really be interested in publishing that, although they should. Yeah, I mean, in many cases, the 
the fact that something doesn't have an effect is just as important as it having an effect. And that is really challenging when you're trying to explore questions of whether something is worth doing because, for example, many medications and even a lot of these alternative treatments have a cost, even if it's just a cost in time. So it's frustrating when there could be any number of people out here who did a well-designed study and found nothing and just decided to bury it because they didn't want that to get out because it didn't agree with their beliefs or their worldview, or they just didn't think it would be interesting to people. It's almost dishonest that the information that's available to us doesn't represent all the work that's been done by the, the scientists that are out there. So that's going to be an important thing to keep in mind. And I will say as a counterpoint about the, the people being interested to being the ones who research this, that's going to be the case to some extent across all of research. That's true. Very true. So you can't write it off entirely. I mean, yeah. there are plenty of studies out there that were funded by drug companies but yeah. are still high-quality studies. Yeah. And you do need to look at them with a critical eye, but somebody has to pay for science to happen. And as much as I would love for that to always be public funding, crowdsourcing, and these kinds of things, it does come down to if somebody's willing to pay for the study and an independent scientist is willing to do the science, then we just have to look at the design and hope that they didn't outright lie. But if they're, <laughs> but if they're actually doing the statistics properly and they didn't fudge the numbers, yeah. then we just have to go through and see that they didn't use any tricks to make things look better than they are. And someday we can go through some of those details, but I suspect that may bore a good chunk of our audience. So we'll, we'll see what direction we take that into. <laughs> Who knows? We might be getting a lot of requests for teach us more biostats. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about anything. We'll find, we'll find people who like biostats more than we do and bring them on here. They'll probably talk about it. So, I mean, sky's the limit really. Yeah. So you don't want to write these studies off entirely, but it is important to realize that in this case and in many other cases, the people conducting the experiments do have an agenda. You hope that it didn't cause them to make honest mistakes and you hope that it didn't cause them to act dishonestly. I think that the prior factor is far more likely than the latter. And either way, it's, it's a risk and it's why we have this, this crisis of repeatability in science. But that's a little bit of an aside. <laughs> On to other limitations to the data. So two other things that we have to keep in mind are a lot of these studies involve small sample sizes. So they look at a small group of people and see how forest bathing affects them. And in the case of these studies, that small group of people happens to predominantly be healthy, young Japanese men. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that limits us in our ability to say that what works for healthy, young Japanese men might not work for everyone in the world. The last limitation is that they study these effects of forest bathing in the short term. There's very few studies that we found that looked at forest bathing over a long period of time. And so that kind of limits us because we don't really know what effect it can have. Maybe it has an amazing effect over many years or months versus the shorter time periods that we were looking at. Yeah. And this also, it becomes challenging because the active forest bathing is sort of loosely defined, as you'll see in these studies, 
they're using a lot of different models and there are some of these papers that propose very specific mechanisms which they make sense on the surface but there are a number of other equally plausible explanations for <laughs> the findings that they find. So. With that segue, we're going to get right into it. So we've kind of organized our uh, benefits of forest bathing, question mark, plus minus, into four categories. The first two are more meaty, and the second two we'll d talk about more briefly. So the first one is, as always, Cody, your favorite organ in the body. The great betrayer itself. <laughs> the heart. <laughs> so, Cody, I want you to go through your article first, and then I'll see if I can add anything with mine. Okay. All right. So the first paper I went through is an article by Yuki Ideno and colleagues, and it's about blood pressure-lowering effects of forest bathing and it's a systematic review and meta-analysis. So going back, a meta-analysis, of course, is pooling lots of different studies together and seeing what the outcomes are. And the nice thing about the meta-analysis, again, is that you get much higher power because you're looking at a lot more studies. And this study ends up being one of the nicer ones because since they're lumping so much together, we can start to get a picture for what the reliable differences are and what we might be able to expect out of forest bathing. All of these studies looked at how forest bathing was able to affect blood pressure, which getting back to the meat and potatoes of healthcare and medicine, high blood pressure is bad because it puts more strain on the heart and the uh, all organs ultimately. And Kavita, do you want to explain that just a little bit before I dive deeper into the paper? <laughs> totally, totally. So why do we care about blood pressure? As Cody said, it puts strain kind of everywhere, and that strain makes everything, all of the blood vessels in the body, change. Anything you put under stress, it starts to affect the building material. Mm. And so the arteries, the veins, the capillaries, all the blood vessels, big and small, in the body, they start to get stressed, wear out, build themselves back up together with yucky, low-quality materials, and then you know potentially have low blood flow or cause a lot of strain on any organ. And that can mean affecting your eyes, affecting the blood supply to the nerves of the eyes, or making the heart blood vessels all crispy and crunchy and mm -hmm. making people have heart attacks, or affecting the amount of blood that your kidneys see and then making your entire system for regulating your blood pressure go way out of whack and then also making your kidneys sort of shrivel up and die a little bit on the inside because mm. they're not getting the nice juicy blood that they want to filter. That was a great summary. <laughs> so even though it's something that is really routinely monitored and it's something you can't really feel until it's already caused some other form mm -hmm. of damage in most cases. Mm -hmm. uh, that's sort of the, the reason blood pressure is important and sort of worth caring about from a larger standpoint. So getting back to this particular study, when they lumped everything together, they found that there were 732 participants. And the studies ranged from very small, looking at six people, to 268 at the larger size. But the, the median study had only 12 participants in it. So these tended toward being smaller. And the 
mean age of participants ranged from a 18 to 80 years. 12 of the studies only looked at men, four of the studies looked at only women, and four did not uh, distinguish sex. And a lot of studies do end up being more male-heavy because when women are studied, there are always questions of whether the hormone cycle is affecting things, and so you have to be a little more careful about controlling things. The problem with ignoring women completely is, of course, that you can't then generalize your findings to the whole population. You can at best generalize to half. So this this is an ongoing problem in both human studies and even in animal studies, believe it or not. People will be like, let's just look at the male mice because it's simpler. Interesting. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm uh, sorry, I'm going into all sorts of asides. <laughs> but the, the trials all used the forest environment in some way. 11 of the trials looked at walking in forest areas. Seven of them looked at sitting and viewing forest landscapes. So this is something I found really interesting. You don't actually have to be walking around in the woods to get some of these benefits. You just need to be exposed to visual stimuli that remind you of the woods. They've, I don't think we found any studies specifically looking at that here, but even just looking at them on your computer yeah. or in virtual reality can have positive effects. That's awesome. So this particular study looked at systolic blood pressure, which is the first number, diastolic blood pressure, the second number, heart rate, and pulse, which is, of course, related to heart rate. It's just collected elsewhere. Now, when they lumped everything together, they found that the systolic blood pressure was significantly lower in the forest environment compared to the non-forest environment. They found that the average drop was three points. So there's a lot of statistical significance here. Yeah. Certainly from a clinical significance standpoint, this is less impressive because if we see in the hospital a change in five points in blood pressure, we're not going to get that excited about no. it. But the fact that it's happening at this large level does suggest that it could be part of a health promotion package that involves other factors. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I think I would never like prescribe this as a treatment for any of my patients with high blood pressure just because the benefit is so small. But again, if this is something that people find enjoyable anyway, this is a a way of kind of kicking that over the edge. I yeah. Think. So by the same token, when they looked at diastolic blood pressure, the, the bottom number, which represents when the blood vessels are at their most relaxed, the arteries, they found a similar change. That was a drop of about 1.7. So statistically significant, not very exciting, but thought-provoking in terms of like, how is this happening? Why is this happening? When they looked at heart rate, they found that the drop was about Uh, 3.8 beats per minute. And that's, again, just on the cusp of being interesting. Just for reference, in the hospital, if I see a change of 10 to 15 points, I think something real might be going on if it's repeated. But much less than that, I just think is going to be noise. Yeah. I'm sad about these results. (laughs) I wanted them to be better. Well... It is a good argument for trying to use it as part of a package. Yeah. And I think that we were a little bit spoiled that some of the green tea results were pretty impressive. Yeah. And it does make you appreciate just how powerful certain other interventions are. Yeah. And 
again, I, I think that the rigor is important. I, I think that there's something to be said for promoting a healthy lifestyle, but if we're going to be serious about it, we need to be honest about what's high yield and what's not. So people who want the best bang for their buck are getting the best information. Absolutely. As much as we have a bias towards greenery, yeah. <laughs> we can't let it interfere in the way of the truth. Yeah, we might end up not finishing this podcast. We went to the <laughs> store and got some plants since this was going to be all about greenery. And there's a palm tree that is larger than my roommate who <laughs> could potentially murder us after we talk this much smack about its people. It is sitting by the window, silently gaining strength. <laughs> if you're hearing this, it means we made it through the process. True. Or Absolutely. The, or the plant uploaded it. Oh, yeah. That's pretty scary. Well, I think what you say is true, though, Cody, that we should take these with a grain of salt, given that a lot of these studies, as we said, aren't that high quality. So maybe if they were, did have the giant resources that drug companies have to do everything the perfect way with the perfect group that gets the thing and group that doesn't get the forest bathing, it might be more dramatic or there might be more validity to what we're seeing. Well, and it's also not purified. The experience of forest bathing is so many things, right? As we'll get to later, some of them are thinking like, oh, they're, they're breathing in these plant compounds and that's probably doing something. Yeah. And then you're also getting exposure to different kinds of light and you're seeing things that from an evolutionary biology standpoint were probably more meaningful than looking at buildings. I mean, yeah. most of human history, we were looking at trees and streams and stuff. But perhaps future directions could try and boil down. Like maybe what we need to do is have a really high concentration of pine trees. Maybe if you did a forest bathe through a Christmas tree preserve, it would be higher yield. But because this is such a stab in the dark, I think these are just the first steps. And the fact that they see a difference at all is kind of promising. Mm -hmm. Because by the same token, if you were to do drug development by just having people take a fistful of drugs that we think might do something and then you see a change then you'd be like okay well now we need to figure out which of this fistful is doing something that's true so again is it walking by these kinds of trees or is it i mean maybe one species is doing all of this and we just need to find out what it is or maybe Mm -hmm. it is being shaded by leaves maybe looking at dappled sunlight is really good for you and we just need to get to that so yeah the gist of this study it looked at essentially just short-term effects and i will say it was really nice they used a system that's common in meta-analyses called the forest plot that really lumps all the data together (laughs) forest plot (laughs) no pun intended (laughs) it's a real thing in statistics it is and it's a good way to see at a glance what a bunch of different studies have shown and it is pretty convincing that like okay looking at all of these studies, they pretty much always fell on the same side that the forest bathing experience was a slight bump. Mm-hmm. But because they're seeing it over and over and over, you at least have confidence that this wasn't just a fluke, unless it was due to publication bias. Which brings me to the other cool point about this, uh-huh. is they used something called a funnel plot that looks at the scatter of the results. Uh-huh. And you can see, well, you can't see. But Kavita and I can see that there is, it's figure six in the Edeno paper for those of you playing along at home. 
you can look at the scatter around the average, and if it's all biased toward one side, it suggests that there should be stuff on the other side, and it keeps getting left out, which points toward publication bias. They found that it might there might be some very weak publication bias, but if you eyeball the figure, it does look fairly symmetrical. Yeah, it looks like there are dots on both sides. Yeah. So it's reassuring that these studies are at least being intellectually honest, and they're not just burying all the negative uh, results. So the punchline of the Adino et al. paper is that the forest bathing experience knocks your blood pressure down a tad, probably not enough to make any kind of clinical impact. Mm -hmm. But if somebody had the burning desire to try and figure out how to refine that, Mm -hmm. I could imagine an environment where you could have some kind of utopian city, for example, Mm -hmm. where you have like the hall of forestry and you go in there and everything is set up to give you the best experience and just walking through there on your way to or from work gives you a significant health bump compared to not doing it. Totally. Or what if we had plants in people's rooms who are in the hospital? Yeah. And there's a lot to it that's not being looked at either because we can get to someday the idea that tending to plants or animals is supposed to be good for you. And there may be some health benefits to be had in that regard as well from like a gardening standpoint. Totally, totally. Taking care of another living thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My article, Cody, by Mao and other researchers kind of points to your point of how it's difficult to figure out what the effect is. And this was a study in China where they took 24 people who were elderly and they all had high blood pressure, but were otherwise pretty healthy. So once again, you know, we have mostly healthy groups of people. They were divided into groups of 12, and one group was sent to a evergreen forest for a seven-day, seven-night trip. The other was sent to a city for a seven-day, seven-night trip. They would check their blood pressure every single day. They would send them out to walk for an hour and a half in the city or in the forest twice a day. And they would also control everything that they ate. So they would all get the same things to eat. And they would they prevented them from drinking any alcohol or uh, smoking. They then looked at blood pressure. They looked at a bunch of biomarkers. They let these groups of 12 loose in their respective environments. Mm. And they found that the blood pressure was lowered for the group that was in the forest compared to the group in the city when they looked at when they first came versus the end of their trip. But the questionable thing is that they never gave us the numbers. They just showed us these charts of bar graphs, so two little bars right next to each other. And... As Cody and I can see, they don't really look that different. They look like they're almost the same. Yeah, and that's where it's a little bit spooky because from my time in grad school, if you don't repeat a study, it's very easy to get a bar graph that looks gorgeous if you do a certain experiment once. And if that happens to agree with what you are hoping to find then there is a certain temptation to just be done with it and put that in the paper. But to be scientifically honest, you've got to repeat what you're doing and make sure that this is a real phenomenon. And the the other concern that comes up in all of these papers, really, is that we see statistical significance a few times, 
And of course, in, in this paper that Kavita's going through, they report statistical significance. But again, looking at the, the numbers and trying to get back to the clinical meaning of those numbers, you have to wonder if there's any real clinical impact to what's going on here. Yeah, exactly. So the blood pressure was, we're not sure because they never gave us the numbers and we squinted at the graphs and they looked about the same. And then the biomarkers, they did like some funny links with the biomarkers and the blood pressure. And a lot of those number combinations that they came up with didn't have um, significant numbers, uh, p-values, which a p-value is basically saying, if you saw this connection between two things, what is the probability, what's the chance that it's all just luck, that Mm -hmm. it's all just happenstance, that it happened to link up this way? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of those p-values are high. You know, they're above the requirement for you to say, hey, this wasn't just chance. This This is a real deal. And... I don't know that I have ever, as a physician, used biomarkers like this when I'm talking to my patients about blood pressure. What counts for me is more so the number, the hard facts of whether their blood pressure is up or down. I never routinely would draw these blood tests on anyone. What they did suggest as well is that it might have been the air quality. They said maybe the air quality in the city was way worse than the air quality in nature, and so that may be why they saw some of these effects that they said were present. And another thing that I'm kind of thinking about is, were these people working? Were they retired? Does a seven-day sort of trip to nature just sound like the best thing ever? Is it a vacation? Yeah, and that comes back to whether... So this this intervention is so multifactorial. Like, there's so much going on here. What about... Like, is there a difference between city walking in your own culture and city walking in another culture? Is it just that you're in an environment that doesn't remind you of a stressful environment? Yeah, absolutely. There's so many things that could be key here and... It, it's a fascinating thing to study, but I think if we care about it and we want to actually change our society in a positive way based on these kinds of studies, we need to dig deeper and we need to try and isolate the, the factors that are actually making a difference. Totally. And I think, you know, to their credit, it's very difficult. There's a lot of things going on in nature at once because nature is magnificent. You can't just tell nature, hey, you know, stop it with the phytochemicals and just focus on the light. Yeah. And I do think this is a good place to start. And certainly some of these studies were done with, to me, the appropriate amount of rigor. I'm not trying to say that these scientists are not good scientists by any stretch. Yeah. But the, the effects are just not as impressive as we would hope. And it's harder for us to, I think, recommend making big life changes out of this as we've been able to to do with some of our other studies. (laughs) Totally. But we'll take it as it goes. We'll Let's see what we feel at the end of this podcast. I'm intrigued. I still don't know if I've formed my opinion. <laughs> so we've left the heart where we are kind of scratching our heads and saying, yeah, it has some effect on blood pressure, but not really sure if it has other effects. Not sure if we can replicate this successfully in many, many studies in many, many different kinds of people. Still a question. Well, and the silver lining to this is as people are living more in the city than used to, Yeah, you probably don't need to feel too guilty if you are running and in an urban environment, but not able to go and stroll in the woods as much as you'd like. 
because you might be getting more health benefits from the exercise than you would be getting from being in an ideal setting. True. Absolutely. And Mm, in cities, you kind of walk everywhere a lot, so that might be useful. Yeah, that's another topic we definitely need to cover, is living in cities is actually good for you. It's like increases your lifespan and these kinds of things, Mm -hmm. which is really counterintuitive, since I always grew up thinking, oh man, pollution and crime and all this (laughs) probably kills you faster. (laughs) But that doesn't seem to be the case, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I I think we should definitely do that in a future podcast because I'm very intrigued by that as somebody who grew up in like a small city. Mm. Okay, so now we're going to our other favorite chronic disease. Cody, do you know which one that is? Well, I'm looking at the outline, so I'm cheating. But (laughs) the endocrine system? Yeah. Wait, this is actually kind of my favorite because the metabolic syndrome is huge. There's so many ways and we could improve... Our, our health as a culture, as a society, by trying to get to the bottom of how we can fight this in a way that isn't annoying. Yeah. Because <laughs> like, we, we do need to build the culture around being able to do healthy habits without having to go way out of our way to do it. Totally. Maybe we need another podcast on how to make sustainable change in your life. Yeah. It would also be nice if we had opened a discussion with a prominent figure in a certain subculture about integrating healthy habits into your culturally congruent identity. Ooh, do you have somebody in mind? <laughs> Jose Moore, yeah. Oh my gosh, you're so <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, definitely didn't awesome. do that. Yes, please listen to that podcast. When it's up. Maybe before or after this one, who knows. So specifically within endocrinology, our favorite disease, of course, is diabetes because it affects so many people and has far-reaching effects just like high blood pressure. So this was a study from Japan and it was a study of 87 people with diabetes that was not so um, advanced to the point that they were on insulin. They were still just on pills and they participated in this study over a period of six years, which is pretty significant. And they participated, though, in the forest bathing nine times over the six-year period. They were divided into two groups. They either walked in the forest for three kilometers or six kilometers, according to how much they could walk and if they had any complications of diabetes, like difficulty feeling your feet or pins and needles feeling in your feet that might prevent them from walking farther. So we got these two groups that are walking short and far distances, and they would check, they would essentially have these uh, participants come eat breakfast in the morning, come to the location, get their blood sugar checked, then go on their walk, which was either three or six kilometers, and then they would come back, get their blood sugar checked again, and I don't really understand. I don't have a good grasp, and I don't know if this is because of the fact that this was probably translated from Japanese or just the fact that it was not included in the study. I don't have a good sense of how often they were doing this or if it was the same participants sometimes or different people sometimes and how they kind of measured this trend. But that was their basic idea. They found that... And the other thing that they checked was the hemoglobin A1C. So they checked the blood sugar level, which is just you pinprick, get the blood, and basically look at how much sugar is in that blood 
the hemoglobin A1C is an average. It's like your batting average over like a three-month period of your diabetes. And it, I think, Cody, did you describe the hemoglobin A1C at some point? Probably, but we can't count on people to sit through our <laughs> entire series every time. So, uh, so it is really a fortunate thing that things work out this way, but what a hemoglobin A1C is, is it's a proportion of your hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is the molecule that carries iron around and carries um, oxygen around, and sugar sticks to it at a certain rate. And because the hemoglobin is recycled every several months, or it's like broken down and new hemoglobin shows up, it gives us an idea how much sugar is floating around over the long term because of how much is sticking around on this often recycled molecule being the hemoglobin. It's uh, it's your how your diabetes is doing over an average of three months because then that hemoglobin gets recycled, as Cody was saying. It gets put out of commission, so it gets retired. And so now we have a whole new batch of hemoglobin with their idealism and naivete ready to take on the world, ready to be enveloped in sugar if your blood sugar is still high. <laughs> okay, so after that very, very long aside... They're looking at the blood glucose, which is just one point in time, and they look at the hemoglobin A1C, which is that average. And they found that the blood sugar went down by, we'll just call it 70 units that you, of your blood sugar measurement. Mm -hmm. And then... It's like milligrams per deciliter, I think, which is yes. obscure to most people. Yeah. So yeah. just that number went down by 70. Yeah. And then the... Hemoglobin A1C went down from 6.9 to 6.5. Of note, a lot of these people, they may have checked the hemoglobin A1C just a month apart, which doesn't necessarily mean that much because, as we said again, it gets recycled every three months, so checking it sooner than three months really isn't going to be that helpful because you're going to have some new, some old. It's going to be a mix. In defense of that measure, yeah. it, a change of that size is actually clinically significant. Like if I see a oh, drop yeah. of that size, yeah. I'm like, oh, this is actually something. Yeah. And the fact that it was that much of a drop in just a month yeah, versus it's probably, having to wait three months. Yeah. It's probably underestimating the change. Yeah. Right. So, that's so I think cool. that's pretty huge. That's the number that I put stock in and weight in in this study because the blood sugar measurement kind of strikes me as questionable because if you think about it, if you ate breakfast, your sugar would go up because you introduced all this food and deliciousness into your body. And the insulin is saying, Hey guys, let's pack it up. Let's get it ready to go. Let's put it in storage. And then you obviously keep a certain amount of um, sugar in your blood just circulating. And then when you're kind of exercising and walking in the forest and not eating for a while, and, you know, this is before you've had your next meal. I imagine that your blood sugar would go down just naturally. Yeah. I think at the end of the study, they tried to explain that maybe it was more than would go down naturally. But I feel like they just were stating things and didn't have a good sort of basis for their thoughts. And so I didn't I didn't accept that as a truth. Yeah. And. I think that whatever the case may be, the hemoglobin A1C is definitely a much more useful marker because clinically that's what we do put a lot more stock in. Absolutely. 
I mean, any of us could spike our blood sugar 40 points or mm-hmm. drop it 40 points mm-hmm. unless there was, unless there's an underlying disease just by eating a certain way, or like you said, just fasting or yeah. avoiding certain foods. Yeah, absolutely. So that paper was actually pretty good because yeah, it was a small number of people, you know, about 60 ish people. But the fact that the hemoglobin A1C went down just by even almost half of a point, 0.4 of a point, that's pretty significant because there are some medicines actually for diabetes that will only bring your A1C down by 0.5. So that's, that's awesome. That gets back to clinical meaning. So uh, here we might have really be onto something. And was this for the form of forest bathing in this study, was it involving exercise or was it just experiencing the forest passively? It was walking at a comfortable pace. Okay. So your heart rate was not supposed to go higher than 110 to 120. Okay. So about 40 to 50% of your maximum ability to exercise. Okay. So that is interesting. It sounds like from a metabolic syndrome standpoint, there might be more advantages on the blood sugar side than there are on the blood pressure side, although it's at least moving in the right direction with the blood pressure. Yes. Okay. So I guess this is still good. There's no need to lose hope as I was feeling before we started recording. So turning to psychological health, stress is another major factor in chronic disease, and there are a couple of mechanisms by which it can affect physical health. And the, the two major ones are the what they call the HPA axis, which is where part of the brain called the hypothalamus uh, triggers another part of the brain that's part of the endocrine system called the pituitary gland, which shoots out all these hormones and then gets out into the bloodstream and activates the adrenal glands, which are little wads of gum looking things sticking (laughs) on the top of your kidneys that produce adrenaline if you are a British person or epinephrine if you are in America, because why would adrenal glands produce adrenaline? That doesn't make <laughs> any sense, right? Um, and then that goes out and ramps up the sympathetic nervous system. And that whole loop leads to a lot of the problems that we face with chronic stress. But this study by Marita and colleagues looked at the psychological effects of forest environments on healthy adults. And they suggest in the title that forest bathing is a possible method of stress reduction. Now, my only beef with this study is that it's mostly self-report. So there's a big risk for confirmation bias. What's that? Confirmation bias. Yeah. Is the, the idea that people are going or people are asking questions to try to establish what they already think they know. So you have to worry about asking questions in a leading way. You have to worry about the fact that the people participating in the study aren't blinded. It's already fairly obvious what they, what the quote-unquote right answer is. Of course, they're not uh, going to fill out the, the surveys and think, oh, yes, these people probably think that forests are bad for you. So I'm going to answer accordingly. So there's a certain risk that the well-meaning participants are going to slant their answers in a way that they think the the researchers want. And that's where the physiologic measures are helpful because it's a lot harder Mm -hmm. to convince your blood to act a certain way (laughs) than it is to fill out a form a certain way. (laughs) 
<laughs> Although, frankly, there are ways to kind of influence that in terms of like, meditation and, and these kinds of things. But um, So what did they find in their slightly biased way? So I don't want to go into great detail yeah. in, in this one just because, like I said, it is all self-report. But uh, they looked at 498 healthy volunteers, and they had surveys that were conducted either in a forest or on a control day. And they filled out a couple of mood scales. One was the multiple mood scale short form, which looked at hostility, depression, boredom, friendliness, well-being, and liveliness. And they looked at a well-known anxiety inventory called the state trait anxiety inventory. Mm -hmm. And they looked at the state scale of that, which looks at your anxiety in the now rather than your anxiety over time. Mm -hmm. And they found that being in the forest, reduced hostility, reduced depression, and reduced liveliness. The hostility and depression decreased significantly. Liveliness increased significantly in the forest day. And environment affected all outcomes except for hostility, favoring the forest environment. And stress levels were shown to be related to the magnitude of the Shinrin-yoku effect, such that the higher the baseline stress level, the greater the effect. So if this is to be borne out by physiologic measures, being in the forest reduces stress. I do think this was a decent first step. I just feel that the design didn't prove all that much, except that people subjectively thought being in the woods was nice, <laughs> which I'm not sure that we really needed a study to do, but perhaps somebody had to do it. <laughs> and I'm glad they found what they found. It would be terrifying if they found that the opposite was true. I'm just imagining myself running around asking people, the forest is good, right? Yeah. Check. I wonder how many of those you'd have to do to get a PhD. <laughs> so this is, I mean, this is one of the problems with psych research is you have to be very careful because a lot of very rigorous psychological research has had to rely mm -hmm. for a long time on written measures. And that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why they went nuts when neuroimaging came out because they could finally look at something that was more objective. Mm -hmm. But I think that as we'll see in one of the other studies I'm going to talk about, there are lots of ways to get at psychological and stress-related phenomena. Mm -hmm. e even looking at things like the, the hypertension effect and the heart rate effect, that's mm -hmm. probably getting more at the psychological effects than it is getting at deep biochemistry. Mm. And I think we need to incorporate those kinds of biomarkers if we want to be able to objectively judge the value of certain practices and certain exposures. That makes sense. It's much harder to make somebody's mood scientific than it is to make somebody's blood pressure scientific. Yeah, definitely. And if somebody's got the willpower to start uh, adjusting their biomarkers, then they've got a level of dedication more than most people. Very true. <laughs> so there's also been a lot of talk about forest bathing affecting your immune system. There are, I googled forest bathing 
and looked at the first couple websites and pretty much all of them mentioned as their first or second kind of uh, benefit of forest bathing that it affects, boosts your immune system. So Cody has a study now that will tell us uh, what he thinks of that. Yeah. This paper is called The Effect of Forest Bathing Trips on Human Immune Function. This is by a guy called, presumably a guy, called Ching Li. And this paper is really interesting because it shows us some of the good things about design and also some of the pitfalls. I like a lot of things about this paper, but there are a couple of things I want to point out that I feel like it it steps a little farther than I would have with the same information. But the... One of the nice things about this study is it is prospective. They looked at adult individuals beginning in 2005, and they did the study prospectively rather than uh, retrospectively, like getting surveys after people had already done things. And they did a three-day, two-night trip to forest areas. Mm-hmm. And another positive of this is they looked at hard biomarkers. They looked at blood and urine samples. They got samples on day two. They got samples on day three. And they got samples on day seven and 30. So this actually looks at slightly longer term effects, Mm -hmm. which is kind of nice. And they looked at natural killer cell activity and a number of related... What's a natural killer cell? A natural killer cell is part of the immune system. So... (laughs) Their immunology gets real dense real fast, but natural killer cells are generally good. They are cells that don't have to be programmed to kill things. So just imagine like the Punisher, (laughs) but it's just a little circle. And instead of having a bunch of guns, it has chemicals that it kind of squirts them out and then bad things happen to things that are in your body that don't belong there. (laughs) So they they look at a number of these markers, and I confess I'm not an immunology expert by any stretch, so ascertaining the clinical significance of these was a little bit harder for me, but I did like the fact that they looked at concrete markers of immune function rather than looking at stress in a way that's easier for people to subjectively weigh in on. Mm -hmm. And the drawback of this paper is that I think it goes a little far into interpretation because, as we've been saying, the act of forest bathing involves so many different things. There's sights, there's sounds, there's exercise, there's movement, and just numerous different kinds of exposures. Mm -hmm. And this one gets really deep into thinking that it's related to exposure to certain essential oils they compare it to natural aromatherapy, and certainly we're exposed to unusual plant compounds when we're in the forest, but I think if you're going to reach that far, then we need to, to lean harder into future studies about the phytochemicals specifically and mm-hmm. just shove people in a room and see if smelling these plant compounds has that effect or if it is the whole package that's necessary. Mm-hmm. But I digress. The idea that you're trying to put forward is that these plant compounds called phytoncides, which are wood essential oils, which are shown to be antimicrobial, that they are affecting the immune system by being breathed in and affecting the, the natural killer cells when they 
react. Mm-hmm. However, I think that there's plenty of argument that just the effects on the HPA axis and stress could be having similar effects. Okay. But the study uh, uses the, the profile of mood states to look at the psychology a little bit. And while we're talking about positives of this study, they did also do a pretty good job of setting up good confounds. One of the concerns that Kavita and I discussed earlier is that physical activity anywhere is good for you. So you have to make sure that people are not just misinterpreting the positives of forest bathing as getting up and moving around more than they're used to. Mm -hmm. And in this one, they, they set people's physical activity to a certain level on day one. They were allowed to work or they were allowed to walk two and a half kilometers in a forest field Mm -hmm. in a period of about two hours. And that's supposed to approximate the normal physical activity the subjects would have on an average working day. Okay. This was a a study with 12 uh, subjects in it. So again, a kind of a smaller study. They were also pretty thorough. So (laughs) on day two, they walked two and a half kilometers in the morning and afternoon. And that was in two different forest fields. And then day three, they just collected um, blood samples and completed a questionnaire. They were also rigorous. They talked about the species of trees here, which makes it a little bit easier to replicate or to dive deeper in. There were Japanese cedar, Japanese beech, and Japanese oak, <laughs> um, which could be really important because, again, like who knows? Yeah. It could be any one of those species is a big deal. Maybe Japanese beech is the next big thing, and these like everything else about forest bathing is pointless. Who knows? Maybe Japanese beech is the new kale. Maybe. You heard it here first. It's a superfood. <laughs> They detail their uh, measures. Again, they get not just white blood counts, but the activity of natural killer cells, the number of natural killer and T cells, and the quantity of the active ingredients that natural killer cells use. They also had some other nice controls. Subjects did not take hot spring baths or eat any special foods such as herbs and alcohol. (laughs) Because that can affect the natural killer cells? It's possible, yeah, for sure. Probably. I mean, they could be on green tea. Who knows? Yeah. On the flip side, there are a few weird things about this study. The first is that instead of pooling all these studies together, they kind of walk through it a little bit too organically. Like, it's nice to tell a story with your research, but Mm -hmm. if you're doing the same sort of study with a couple of different populations, like they do forest walking with men, forest walking with women, city walking with men, city walking with women. And I kind of want to see it all pooled together. Mm-hmm. I'm a little concerned that the reason they present it this way is because the... Because there are st- like differences. Yeah, maybe the differences disappear when you pool things together, which mm. as we learned from our discussion of meta-analyses, when you pool data, you should get better information. Mm-hmm. So if things are just going away when you pull it together, then that is concerning for the fact that it might just be noise. Totally. Totally. But what this study did find is that the natural killer cell activity and the natural killer cell numbers were improved by the forest bathing trip. They also found that it increased all of those um, markers that are sort of the ammunition of natural killer cells they found that the results were fairly durable up to a month, which is kind of cool. Again, the drawback here is that the statistics were a little weird. 
So without getting too deep into the to the nitty gritty, the the way they analyzed the data was not they didn't use the tests that I would have expected them to use. And again, maybe it was an honest mistake. Maybe they have a reason that I don't quite understand for choosing this. But it raises the suspicion that perhaps they used these methods because using the more mainstream methods didn't yield the result they were looking for. Totally. And Cody has a PhD, so he knows about research methods. <laughs> I know a little bit about research methods. <laughs> more than I do. But looking at just the general shape of, of their data, it does show a consistent pattern across all of the natural killer cell activation measures, and it does show a little bit of durability. Similar to some of Kavita's articles, there's a problem with magnitude and I'm not sure that these are clinically significant differences, and I confess that my knowledge of immunology is not such that I can draw quick comparisons. I'd have to look at a lot more immuno papers before mm-hmm. I could tell what difference in NK cell activity actually matters to a person in terms of fighting off disease. Mm-hmm. But it does look like there's a little bit of an immune boost, although I remain concerned that the data might have been tortured. And again, it comes down to, in their conclusions, they spend a bit of time going into how this could very well be due to the exposure to the the phytoncides. But I think that if you're going to make that assumption, you really need to be doing a different study that isolates the phytoncides rather than taking this complicated approach. <laughs> That's true, because they were talking about natural killer cells. How do they get onto phytons? But this is a good example of how a lot of effort and a lot of perfectly good writing is damaged a little bit by making some unusual statistical decisions and jumping a little bit to conclusions, although you're certainly expected to come up with some explanation to why uh, things might be going the way they are. Mm-hmm. And they do mention that this could be related to the HPA axis, but I just found it a little strange that they went to something as esoteric as breathing in immune active compounds. Would you be breathing in enough of these to make any kind of difference? I guess That's true, question. yeah. I don't know how uh, potent the phytonicides of the Japanese beach are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So this ended up being, I feel like, a little bit more of a somber explanation or exploration of the literature because it just wasn't it wasn't as one-sided and exciting as some of the previous topics. And I think the quest continues for finding the most high-yield ways of incorporating plant life into our society in a health-promoting way. Yeah, I agree with you. I. I think I found that we were sort of finding holes in these studies more than we were celebrating what they were presenting like we usually do, just Mm -hmm. because we did question whether we have enough information yet to make a good conclusion about forest bathing being a good thing for you. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of related questions we can continue to explore because certainly, I mean, hiking is good for you. Camping mm-hmm. has advantages. Mm-hmm. No one's going to argue that this is an unhealthy habit to get into. Yeah. But we also don't want to have people go into it under false pretenses that it's doing huge things for your health 
and then maybe cutting corners in other areas that could be helping. Yeah, yeah. And I think it remains to be seen. Some of the topics like gardening and maybe even nutrition-based discussions, maybe those are the better ways to harmonize with plants, let's say. Yeah. I think my big conclusion after reading through these papers and talking about them is that forest bathing by itself, as we've been saying, isn't the end-all be-all for improving your health, but it could be part of your big lifestyle change that you are slowly making over time. Yeah. And it's also not an all or nothing thing. Certainly, especially with the the diabetes results, for example, it wouldn't be a bad thing to have more trees around and that sort of thing. And of course, there are environmental benefits and just aesthetic benefits, which I imagine can affect the psyche in subtler ways. Yeah. Yeah. And what was that study about like having more trees on your street was good for you or something like that? So we looked at this review article, which has a bunch of articles put together. And there was a study, I think in Canada or Denmark somewhere that they looked at basically Google Maps of trees. (laughs) And then they looked at people living next to those trees. And then they made conclusions based on the health of those people living next to more trees versus fewer trees. And that's an example of the challenges of doing association type research because there may very well be confounds. Yeah. Uh, Those, the neighborhoods with more trees are potentially associated with socioeconomic status or either living more educated. Yeah. Living in a nicer part of town, living in a place that's, just got better air quality overall. Mm -hmm. Maybe not because of those trees, but maybe they left trees on those streets because it was an area that's forested AF all around. Very true. So hard to know. But I think that episodes like this give us an opportunity to look at how criticism is important and as exciting as it is to look at a headline, I'm sure there are countless articles out there that are like, yay, forest bathing's good. There are. And <laughs> there totally are. <laughs> it is good. but And we're not saying that you shouldn't do it. But it's, it's always dangerous to, to assume that something is better for you than it is. And yeah. as we'll get to in exercise, for example, it can actually be dangerous for people to put too much stock in exercise because it's way too easy to eat over the calories that you've just burned. Yeah, absolutely. And by the same token, I think the takeaway for me is that I would caution you not to get into other bad habits and excuse them because you're treating yourself to a hiking or camping experience because it, it may be a positive thing for you uh, psychiatrically and or psychologically and physically, but it's probably not going to be enough to erase some of the other pitfalls that are fairly easy to fall into. Yeah, absolutely. I think my personal takeaway from this topic of forest bathing is that I will continue to grow plants because that gives me great satisfaction. And I think now when I'm walking outside and it's a nice day and it's not deathly cold outside, or even if it is, I will take more time to put my phone in my pocket and maybe look at the sky, look at the trees, look at my surroundings rather than looking at a screen. Yeah, I think that's a good message. And I imagine we're going to revisit topics like this, especially when we look more at mindfulness and meditation type topics. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have not 
said the last word that we're going to say about these things. <laughs> you can sense our hesitation <laughs> in trying to say anything good or bad about forest bathing, but we are so happy that you guys came along this ride with us today. It is not completely satisfying. It's like eating half of a cupcake and staring at the other half of it which is great for your health, but not great for your just sense of satisfaction and those endorphins in your brain. But as Cody said, it's really important for us to be honest and truthful, and that's what we're going to do. And now we are going to tell you how you can talk to us about forest bathing or any topic of your choosing. If you want to get a hold of us, you can find us on Instagram at Against Disease. You can find us on Twitter at also at Against Disease. You can send us an email at againstdisease at gmail.com. We are on Facebook at uh, just type in Humanity Against Disease and it'll help you find our discussion <laughs> group and our um, general Facebook group. You can see what events and things we're up to. And so we have um, humanityagainstdisease.com that gives you a snapshot of who's involved with Humanity Against Disease, and we're going to put uh, major updates uh, up there, and you can get an idea what the organization is all about from that perspective as well. Sounds good. <laughs>